0: Aloha and welcome to Reflections on Interpretation, talking story with guides and interpreters. I'm Tim Merriman, your host on the Big Island of Hawaii. Today, I want to do something a little different. Uh, Lisa Brochu is my guest. We have been friends for 43 years. We have trained together uh, for about 23 years, and we were married 15 years ago. She is my wife. We live together on the Kona side of the Big Island. But she's really better known in the profession for her 30 years of working with a lot of different clients as a planner and trainer. And she wrote a a book, Interpretive Planning, that's ended up being a very important text in courses around the world and in private training activities. You know, because we have so much history in the profession, uh, both working separately and in in more recent years working together, we often have conversations on our lanai or around the dinner table about the profession. And this conversation today is going to be mostly about kind of our history with the professional association development that occurred over a great many years. Uh, On another day, we'll talk about some of the other aspects of our uh, work, both apart and together, our planning career certification program and other things. But I'm happy to welcome my wife, friend, and uh, training partner, Lisa. I kind of know your background and mine because we both talk about it some when we teach a virtual CIG course, a certified interpretive guide course for National Association for Interpretation. I started kind of my interpretive career in the state park i thought i was going to be a biology teacher you've heard that many times i i ended up not liking the classroom as much as being outside with a bunch of kids and uh, state park was a great place to start learning but for me anyway that first professional meeting i went to in california in 1974 really launched me because i realized there were other people doing what i was doing
1: Yeah, I I probably grew up thinking that I was going to be a National Park Service ranger. I, um, my family did a lot of camping when we were kids uh, growing up and family vacations were always uh, in our Apache tent trailer all over the United States and Canada. And I was always pretty impressed with the with the rangers that I came in contact with and thought that might be a good career path. But I was also very interested in uh, vet school and becoming a a wildlife veterinarian. But uh, when I started looking at colleges and, and degree plans and all of that, I realized that it probably was not going to be in the cards for me to be a vet. Um, I, I'm I'm not a big fan of organic chemistry. And uh, that was, of course, a requirement uh, to get into vet
0: school. So uh, you were at Texas A&M and they had a program in interpretation, right?
1: Well, the, the program was in the Recreation and Parks Department. And um, it was a, a program that was started by uh, John Hanna, and he he developed a, a curriculum where you could specialize in environmental interpretation or historical interpretation, and uh, I thought it was brilliant because there really weren't very many opportunities for somebody to take the combination of coursework uh, that you needed to be successful in this in this field, but. The curriculum that I had as an undergraduate was um, involved all of the science-based courses, which I I really did love, the botany, the biology, the uh, conservation, all of those sorts of things. But it also um, included coursework in theater and group, communication dynamics and psychology and all of those sorts of uh, soft science type things that that are also important in an interpretive career.
0: I kind of envy that because I did zoology and botany, uh, zoology, bachelor's, botany, master's, and I had a teacher certificate and I thought I was going to teach school. And I did student teach, and I really liked it a lot. But I didn't know there was such a thing as getting to share love for that sort of thing. You were taking courses I would have loved to have taken then, like theater and that sort of thing. But uh, zoology majors, you just try to back it up with as much science as you can. It was useful.
1: Sure. I, I think I think all of those uh, sorts of courses are, are useful because as a as a field interpreter, very often you're a generalist. You're not a, a, a specialist in any one area, you you know, a lot, you know, a little about a lot of things. And um, and so I, I really appreciated the background, the academic background that I, I came into the field with. But perhaps more important was the uh, opportunity, because my major professor was involved heavily with uh, the Association of Interpretive Naturalists, which was the one of the predecessors of, of uh, NAI, the National Association for Interpretation. He encouraged all of his students to become involved in that organization. So Back this was back in the 70s, and that's that's when I got involved with then AIN and uh, WIA because it um, largely because of his involvement in in the um, the organization.
0: Western Interpreters was the first group I met because the 74 meeting I went to was the Sealomar Conference Grounds in California, where California State Parks trains and blew my mind because you could stand in line for dinner there and watch gray whales migrating by in the ocean. And the person behind you would go, oh, I'm a (laughs) cetologist. I interpret whales. (laughs) And so you get a great story about the whales going by. And I just didn't realize uh, naturalist was the working title I had. And I didn't realize it was such a working title as interpreter. And I certainly didn't know there was a broader professional organization that served it. So it was kind of a beginning. I, I started planning for their meetings any chance I could get. Do you remember the first meeting you went to?
1: Well, the first meeting I went to was a regional meeting of AIN. In fact, it was the uh, inaugural meeting our, of the what we then called the South Central uh, Region um which included Texas, Arkansas, Louisiana, Kansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma. And I can remember those states because we uh we called ourselves Talkmo because we we tended to talk a lot. <laughs> so um it was a it was a fantastic group of people, very enthusiastic and, and very passionate about what they did. And our very first regional get-together. Uh, through an AI, through AIN was uh, in 1977 at Pettigene State Park where we actually drafted a request to AIN to become recognized as a region of the of the organization, um, and that region still exists today. It's in spite of all the changes that uh, have come and gone over the years with with other regions kind of shifting lines and, and boundaries and whatnot, that region is still going very strong. Um, my first national exposure was at, um, in 1979 in Minnesota, we had a a national meeting there and I remember it well. I, I actually don't remember much of the meeting itself, but I remember the experience because a bunch of us had, um, from Texas A&M, had organized a university van to drive up and uh, take part in the meeting. And so it was uh, me and several other students from the wildlife department and the um, inter- curriculum. And we made it all the way to the, to the conference without incident. We had a great time while we were there. And on the way home, uh, we were trying to drive straight through as um, people do. And we were a little overtired. The driver uh, ended up falling asleep at the wheel. And this happened in, I believe it was a February meeting. It was, um, the roads were icy and just outside of Wichita, Kansas, we uh we left the road at a high rate of speed and crashed into a, a field, narrowly missing a a big tree. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. Boy. And uh we, nobody was was killed, thankfully. Um we had a few injuries and I sustained a, a pretty significant head injury and and was um Kind of out and out for a, about a month and a half. Um, Took you out of school. Well, I actually stayed in school. Oh. I I did drop one course um, to lighten my load a little bit, but I couldn't actually go to classes during that time, and um, I, it it was pretty challenging. I I had difficulties remembering how to how to write a check. You know how to do some basic functions and so trying to complete my course load that semester was was a bit of a challenge but i got it done and uh, graduated on time
0: my first regional was i think at bradford woods which was the birthplace of association of interpretive naturalists and i say think because a bunch of us from southern illinois university drove over in a van and went to a regional meeting and at the meeting they said Oh, you're from Illinois. Yeah. You don't have a region. Uh, what do you mean we don't have a region? They said you have to petition the organization to have a region. And Illinois has never been a part of any of the, uh, the process. Or actually, you've kind of been allowed to tag along with Michigan and Indiana and Ohio. But uh, logically, you ought to be with Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin. You folks all are lacking a formal region. And so they, four or five of us from Illinois, signed a petition to start a region at that meeting. And I was asked to carry it to a meeting in Iowa at a nature center in a few weeks. And I did and got a few more signatures. And I don't even remember the minimum number, but 10 or something, it wasn't big. We finally had enough members that we could start a region. That became region five. And I took over a, I I created the new newsletter called the Buffalo Bull. And it became a, kind of famous for being tongue-in-cheek uh, stories and interpretation. And uh, perhaps if I re- went back and read them, I might not think it's as professional as it should have sounded, but it was funny.
1: Well, those those were the days when um, we, we were less concerned, I think, about um, everybody's concerns. And I know that there were some things that happened at at, uh, various meetings that we probably wish if we had it in hindsight, if we could go back and do it differently, we would probably do things a little differently. Um, But
0: You know, I think we met briefly in 1980 at Cape Cod at a Association of Interpretive Naturalists National. I was doing a using the arts and interpretation thing there and was doing some music. I actually organized some people to play music And weirdly, I got to where every time I went to a meeting, I'd take along a mandolin and try to get folks to jam in the evening. I want to say Ann Nelson, who came up to me from Forest Service and said, how would you like to run for vice president of AIN? I said, I don't think I ought to. I've never been anything. and I've never had any leadership role, whatever. I said, why do you think uh, I should run? She says, because we need two candidates. And we don't think you'll win, but (laughs) I was was flattered. And uh, I ran, and oddly, I won. And I then was stuck with, oh, gosh, I've got to really learn what this organization does, and I've got to get involved in a more serious manner. And I did. And, of course, what I learned was that we continually flirted with Western Interpreters Organization and talked sideways kind of about bringing the two groups together you you had a more formal role i, th- I think in thinking about that i
1: well, i don't think it was a formal role it was i had again exposure to both organizations um largely due to um working with um with john Hanna and people who were deeply involved in the organizations um but you know, back in the, in the 80s, early 80s, the conversation in both organizations constantly came up about, should we combine the organization? Should we not? You know, how different are they? And of course, you know, some people thought they were very different and some people who belonged to both. Uh, Realized that they weren't that different in terms of the services that they were offering and how they approached things, and ultimately, you know, both organizations were committed to being a place where interpreters could come together and and meet and talk and learn from each other, and and that was really the whole point of both organizations. So, for people like me who weren't making a lot of money back then. Um, trying to belong to two professional organizations and figure out whose meetings to go to and what you could afford. Cause I never had anybody support my involvement in the organizations. It was just out of my own pocket. And um, so it, 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 at some point um, I think because I was working with Tom Christensen, who was heavily involved with uh, aim at the at the time we started talking about whether or not there was uh, any way to establish whether these organizations should come together or not he was uh thoughtful enough to allow me to to use some of our company resources to um conduct a survey for the organizations and well what I did basically was just put together a survey form, which we had to mail out to. These were the days before, <laughs> before there was, um, you know, constant contact and Survey Monkey and all of those things that make this much easier now. Um, but we we put together the survey and mailed it out. Uh, got all the responses back in from both organizations, the membership in both organizations, which was. Roughly about 2,000 people, um, not everybody participated in the survey, obviously, uh, as they don't, but the the, um, the number that we got back was significant, and uh, the question that was kind of top of mind, in addition to just establishing kind of who belonged to which organization and why, and whether they had dual memberships or not, was to establish whether we should come together as a single organization and was there value in that? And uh, the response was was really pretty overwhelmingly, yes, we, we really should come together uh, because people were a little tired of belonging to two different organizations that basically did the same thing. And so that survey became the basis to go to the boards of both organizations and say, okay, what do you think? Should we, should we not? Um, How would we go about this? And, you know, that's kind of where you come in again into the
0: story. Yeah, mid-1980s, after serving as vice president, they asked me if I was going to run for president, and I I was director of a nature center in Pueblo, Colorado, and I was way too busy to be doing a lot of that. But uh, I said I'll—I was like you. I was paying dues to both organizations, and I thought that was not so good. I'd also, as vice president, set in on a meeting at uh, Grand Canyon at one point with the board of Western Interpreters and the board of AIN, and I listened to us sit and kind of argue about how different the organizations were. And like you, I thought they seemed pretty similar. So I um, I realized we weren't getting it done. But I did get elected president. And I think pretty much because I sent out a very passionate letter that I funded out of my pocket to all uh, 1,000 AIN members saying, if you elect me, I will work toward consolidation, bringing the two together. And by a slim margin, I won. And so when your information came in, it was kind of what was needed for, at least for our board. I didn't sit in on Western interpreters meetings, but I know at our board meeting, they said, yeah, why don't we do this? And uh, they suggested I go to the world, First World Heritage Congress in Banff, Alberta, and that I invite Alan Kaplan, to meet with me. And so Alan was the president of Western interpreters. I called him and we agreed we'd just share a room. And it turned out to be very lucky because I ended up with the flu while I was there. And Alan was kind enough to bring me a soup a couple times a day and kept me alive for two or three days. Well,
1: Alan's like that. He's yeah, he was great. Natural caretaker. So yeah, I was at that, that meeting also. And uh, remember, you know, sitting down uh, with you to have that discussion about kind of the the background comments that were um, added uh, that came in while we were doing the the survey form. So uh, interesting times.
0: Well, the upshot of it was that Ellen and I agreed that we could each appoint three people from each organization and that committee of six would meet over the next three years and talk about feasibility and i appointed tom christensen who you worked with and uh, in inside outside as the chair of our three person committee i remember that donna posey was very involved on the western interpreter side i can't name every representative these days but i know that in a very short period of time less than a year the committee of six came back and said yeah, we've got it all planned out. We can do this.
1: Yeah, and part of that process was to uh, once we had kind of the approval to to go forward with all of that, the um, meeting in St. Louis in 1987 uh, became what was known as the the last meeting, uh, joint meeting of AIN and WIA um, because. It, when the uh, new year started, uh, that meeting was held in November. And when the new year started, we would become uh, NAI for the first time in 1988. So while NAI celebrates its 35th anniversary this year, and that is in fact accurate because that it, it's been 35 years since uh, that organization was created. The um, parent organizations, of course, had been around much longer. So,
0: well, sixty-nine years if you attach the two numbers together.
1: Right, right, and um, and so some of us, you know, remember belonging to both of those organizations, one or the other or both of those uh, parent organizations. So, when we say things like, "Yes, we've been members for," Half a century. <laughs> yeah. There's there's a reason why we say that. That was that was kind of a unique meeting for uh, for several reasons. Uh, at that time, the St. Louis meeting was the largest joint meeting that we'd ever had together. Uh, the two organizations together. We had I think about 750 people in attendance, and uh, previously even joint meetings had only had about um, four to five hundred. So it, it was it was a interesting time as we brought the two organizations together. But one of the other byproducts that that maybe people don't know about um, of that meeting was that it, it also birthed the Federal Interagency Council for Interpretation, um, oddly enough, I, I was the program chair for the St. Louis workshop. And at the time I was also working um, with Tom Christensen at Inside Outside. And we had a, a federal contract and I had to go to Washington, D.C. to uh, meet with our our contract uh, representative. So I took the time to call all the federal Heads for interpretation in uh, Bureau of Land Management, uh, Corps of Engineers, Fish and Wildlife Service, Forest Service, and of course National Park Service. And I I asked them if they would be willing to sit down and meet with me so we could talk about how the St. Louis workshop and and then future workshops um, of NAI. Could support their efforts in the federal agencies um, in in their interpretive efforts. So they uh, they all agreed to to meet with me, uh, and we went to lunch at the Library of Congress. And um, I asked them how often they got together like this, assuming, of course, that they that they did. And I was surprised that when they told me they had never done that before, they had never sat down together as a group and talked about interpretation or how their agencies deal with interpretation. That meeting, we talked about a lot of different things, um, but especially the the workshop. But out of that came the Federal Interagency Council for Interpretation. They wanted to continue meeting and uh, even beyond the workshop. And I was I was thrilled um, because I thought that was an important step forward uh, for the, for the federal agencies. And they asked me if I would uh, ask if they could become an official committee of NAI. And so at the first board meeting for the new organization, I, I carried forward that proposal from, from the committee, Paul Franzen, then president, put it on the agenda and it, was passed. And the uh, then vice president, um, Bill Randall, was assigned the task of uh, making sure that they got together and met regularly. And that continued for for many years.
0: It's still going on. I think uh, Paul Caputo told me that they you know, were meeting by uh, Zoom or something during the pandemic. But uh, later I would become executive, and I know that I'm, I met with them three times a year in D.C. and once a year at our national conference, and they would agree to get collaborative sponsorship of our annual proceedings, which gave us some seed money for the event, and they began to hear each other talk about projects, and one federal agency would say, we're planning a new visitor center in uh, this location, and the other agency would say, oh, so are we. And so collaboration would come out of that conversation. But the other part of it was we began to see meetings that averaged 900 to 1,200 people every year because the feds could also put together meetings amongst their own staff at the national conference. And it really, FICI I saw as one of the great innovations in getting kind of the entire profession together, all of the feds plus the private sector plus the public sector, for-profit folks.
1: As I say, it was an interesting meeting because it it led to many different things. That was also the first meeting um, where we designated the proceeds from the auction towards scholarships. And um, the difference that made, we had previously done auctions at our annual workshops and they tended to bring in somewhere around $1,500 to $2,000, but at that workshop, uh, because we had designated it for scholarships, people really opened their pocketbooks and were far more generous, so both the fact that we had more people there and the fact that we had designated it as a scholarship auction where the proceeds would go to support uh, people who needed uh, some financial assistance in in getting to the workshops and and it was designated for students not not professionals at that time it was just students really made a big difference and uh, we we ended up taking in i think around almost $8000 at that at that auction for the first time and so that was pretty exciting as well i think it was a excitement over the coming together and consolidation of the two organizations at that at that meeting but I think the other reason for its success was that um, I actually did a marketing plan for that meeting and looked at um, some of the different things that we needed to do to to make it work.
0: Well, it was well organized and you didn't get to attend, as I recall.
1: No, after all the work I did putting it together and the, the interagency council and all of that, um, It turned out that uh, I ended up uh, getting pregnant during the planning phases of that, (laughs) which was very poor planning for somebody who uh, had a reputation as a planner. Um, But in fact, my son was born just the week after that uh, event took place. And so there was no way I could actually get to the meeting um, at the time. So
0: and so we have a photo of I forget how many founders, but people who made a initial hundred dollar donation, and you did, oh, yeah. But you're not in the photo, so we should go Photoshop <laughs> you into that.
1: Uh, yeah, that was before the days of Photoshop, and we were able to to do that sort of thing.
0: Well, I can tell you they celebrated. It was interesting to watch all the founders come down front in the auditorium there in St. Louis, and uh, I think everybody recognized that it. it was kind of a watershed moment to bring the two organizations together and launch NAI, and that uh, it would be different. We didn't have to talk every three or four years about a joint meeting between the two groups, and a lot of us could quit paying dues to two groups. It was cool. Well, after the St. Louis meeting, and then in 88, the first NAI national workshop, I really wasn't very involved for about six or seven years. I, I was a member. And I would go to national meetings, but I didn't serve in any official capacity. And so when the,
1: well, wasn't that even a condition of the consolidation? Oh yeah, this... that that you both you and Alan would kind of take <laughs> we... a step back and
0: well, and Jim Covell and, and was... Jim
1: Covell and not try to influence the yeah. the uh, early development of the organization. Yeah. And um, and I always thought that was uh, a little awkward because for me it made more sense for the people who kind of knew the most about the organizations and how they functioned to to really have a a role in um laying groundwork for the new organization but um you know we lived through it and and it all came out okay i guess
0: well it, in the uh, 93 94 and 95 I was working at Land Between the Lakes as a manager of research and innovations uh, with Tennessee Valley Authority, and Tom Christensen was there. Again, our paths crossed again. We were both uh, managers in that program, and Tom happened to be the chair of the search committee in '95 for the new executive director of NAI, and I'd been away from it for seven or eight years, and uh, interestingly, Tennessee Valley Authority said, well, we're going to hand Land Between the Lakes to the Forest Service, and it won't be a TVA property anymore. And so you all have to change jobs. And I said, well, gosh, if I'm no longer here at Land Between the Lakes, what would I be? And they said, well, you have a doctorate in communications. You could go to a nuclear power plant and be the PR director. And I tried to imagine that because I was not a big fan of nuclear power in the first place. So I, they gave us a six-month salary to go away, and I took it and instead of taking a job with a power plant, and the result was at almost exactly six months, I was hired by NAI as a new executive director in April of 95, and I moved from Kentucky to Colorado. And did you ever visit the office there? I don't uh that was in the, uh, Colorado state university.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I I did. I was there. Um, Bobby Gallup Gallup was the executive director and, um, dropped in on campus to see the little closet space. That was the, (laughs) that was the office back then. It was, it was tiny and, uh, not very efficient, but, uh, it was what we had. I mean, Well, I know. And that was part of the again, part of the condition of consolidation of the two organizations, if I remember correctly, was that it not be centered on either coast, um, because that was one of the concerns of people at the time was that AIN was perceived as kind of the Beltway Gang, Washington, D.C. feds. And uh, WIA was, was perceived as, you know, those tree huggers out in California and neither group kind of wanted to, to have to wrestle with the other group over whether we were going to be wearing suits or lumberjack uniforms. <laughs> and so I, I remember that thankfully um and, and I'm not entirely sure how this came about, maybe you remember, uh, but Colorado State University was uh, did offer some space on campus. And since that was kind of a, a middle of the country sort of uh, option, that's where we landed.
0: Well, the Department of Natural Resources, Recreation and Tourism had been dubbed for about 30 years as the Ranger Factory. And they had bragged that they had more of their former students in National Park Service uh, uniforms than any other school in the country. Uh, uh, They offered us an office. It was a, I don't know, probably 12 by 16 faculty office, maybe 12 by 18. And back then it was a staff of two. Uh, Phil Tedesco was the membership manager and I was as executive director. Well, interesting thing about being in that size office, is if either of us was on the phone, the other person could hear every word that was said, and if you were both on the phone, it was kind of hard to hear who you were talking to, and so um, it got me to looking for uh, a different office space pretty quickly. the The department had been gracious; they allowed me to teach as a junk faculty, which was terrific because uh, I liked teaching interpretation, and they, uh, I don't. I think they were sorry to see us leave because they actually had faculty that were uh, ganged up two to an office in other places and somebody got to move to their own office. So, but we found a little Victorian house, 528 South Howes Street in Fort Collins. And that small Victorian house I thought was huge. Uh, Gosh, it was all of, I want to say 900 square feet. It was a small space, but we actually had or discrete rooms that could be offices.
1: Well, and some storage space yeah. as well. Um, a garage. Yeah, uh, and you know, back in those days, uh, there really was, there wasn't a lot of reason to have office space other than to have a place for staff to work and and storage space for records, um, because almost all of our records were handwritten at that time. I mean, I can remember membership records on Rolodex cards and um, it just, you know, I, it sounds odd now to think about how how computerized everything has become, but that's really a recent phenomenon.
0: The building that was we built at 230 Cherry Street in Fort Collins has ended up being a a really vital asset. It, when we left the organization in 2012 as executive staff, um, it was about 80, 85% paid off um, the debt that we had incurred to, to build it. And they tell me that it's now entirely paid off. So, yay, thanks to all the donors, including us, who contributed to paying for that. I just, you know, as executive director, I wanted that that feeling of uh, not paying rent, owning where we were, having plenty of space. And that that building kind of achieved that. So,
1: Well, and I think one thing that many people don't realize, um, I know at the time when we were first getting started in that building, um, many people questioned, you know, who was paying for it. And what they didn't realize was that you had set up a um, an agreement with another organization that uh, rented out the lower half of the building, the the first floor of the building, and NAI's offices were all on the second floor, and and that effectively paid the mortgage payment um, for for many many years. Yeah,
0: we were the landlord,
1: and so that. It was not only building a financial asset, but at very little uh, cost to the organization itself.
0: We also got into, because we had space and uh, a bigger staff to do a lot of the work, we branched off into publishing. And um, one of the first books published by NAI was a book that you and I co-authored called Personal Interpretation. And I remember the asking the board of directors, if we write a book that is, is a companion to the Certified Interpretive Guide Course, would we be allowed to retain ownership? And of course, the controversy would be, are you writing this on NAI time? And at that time we were traveling 60, 70 hours a week doing training and writing was going to be out of our personal time on weekends. And the board unanimously agreed that we could do that. And so we published personal interpretation. And then later, uh, you have a couple more books in the uh, association publication line.
1: Yeah. The now executive director and and I and um, Shay Lewis from Arkansas co-authored a book called in- "Interpretation by Design," and um, it was a a way to get people to think about uh, graphic design in interpretive signage and uh, other media, um, but. I am, I am proud of the interpretive planning book, uh, and did publish that actually before I came on staff um, in, in 2002. Uh, I think, I think actually the first publication date was 2001 and I came on in 2002. Uh, the interpretive planning book, the 5M model for successful planning projects.
0: As I recall, you had written a lot of that through the years. And actually because I remember saying, uh, when are you going to finish your interpretive planning book? And you said, Well, I just need to know that it's going to be published. <laughs> I, I have a lot of it.
1: Yeah, it, it took uh probably longer than it needed to, as these projects usually do. But um you kind of continuing to to bug me about it is is what finally got me off the dime and, and get it finished. And uh, in publication, and it, it it was the basis for the interpretive planning workshop that I had been teaching for many years in different uh, venues for different organizations and agencies um, and the Interpretive Management Institute portions of it. Um, so it was already, um, the information was out there, that approach was out there, but it just hadn't been collected and published as the book uh, until 2001 when, uh, Interpress, uh, picked it up. And, um, and it's, it, I have, you know, I think it's in its second or third edition at this point. Um, and hopefully will continue to be useful to folks as a, as a way to think about interpretive planning. I do still teach the, uh, an interpretive planning workshop based on that, that book. Um, I don't do it for NAI anymore, but I do have the workshop available to folks and they can find it. Um, our next, next one coming up is in August of this year. And uh, via zoom. Yeah. It's all via zoom. Uh, I've had people from Russia, from Italy, uh, from the Philippines, from Mexico, all over the place, taking this class, uh, by Zoom. And, um, and I like that aspect of it. Uh, I do keep it small so that we have the ability to talk and discuss and ask questions about specific projects that people are working on. So it's very personalized, um, approach to the material, um, and as i said that's that's coming up in august so people can find out more about that on our on our website uh at heartfeltassociates.com/training uh, to register for that
0: and that's a 12 hour course and then you have a, a something or no that's 9 hour no
1: no it's it's 12 hours for the planning workshop four days 3 hours each day um, and then i follow that with a fifth day which you can register for separately, that is specifically about contract management. And again, that's based on my 30 plus years as a contract manager, um, both sides of the table, both hiring consultants and working as a consultant. So it's for people who are thinking about going into that line of work, uh, or people who have to deal with consultants and how to how to get the one you need and, and how to get the most for your money while you do that. So
0: we talk every day. It's been uh, interesting to reminisce about the past with AIN and WIA. We'll probably get together ever so often do this again as kind of a chat on the Lanai of our Hawaii home and maybe in the future, talk about the certification program and how that really got geared up the way it is. And maybe also talk about your 30 plus years as a planner trainer in the private sector, because that's a whole different experience. And and you had some interesting jobs.
1: Definitely. <laughs> okay. there's, there's some interesting stories there, but that's that's for another day.
0: Thanks for joining us today on Reflections on Interpretation, Talking Story with Guides and Interpreters. It's been a pleasure to have Lisa here today. And I will tell you that next week on Friday morning, you will hear me Talking story with Shelton Johnson, park ranger at Yosemite National Park, well known for his long career in the field and for his work with the Ken Burns documentary about national parks. So do tune in and check that out. And I'd like to thank Mark Stofel for the use of his wonderful mandolin music on the Cookies and Cream album. I hope you have a wonderful day. and Join us next week. Aloha.